In the first service, Mark said, I talked to, to Mark a few weeks ago, and I really liked him. He didn't say that this time, so I'm wondering what's going on between the first and second service. <laughs> uh, we had a great time yesterday talking about apologetics, how to defend our faith in the world today that uh, can be very hostile, but also not just on the defense of how do we share our faith effectively. And we covered 1 Peter 3.15 that talks about the fact that every Christian needs to be prepared to give an answer. Now, too many times we trust in the authorities, the professors and pastors. They'll have an answer. But we are commanded in 1 Peter 3 that every Christian should work, prepare themselves to provide an answer to those who ask us for why we believe in the Christian faith. And the number one objection to the Christian faith in our world today is the problem of evil and suffering. And it typically goes like this. If God were all-powerful, He would be able to prevent evil. If God were all-good, He would desire to prevent evil. So if God were all-powerful and all-good, there would be no evil. But there is evil, therefore there is no all-powerful, all-good God. Uh, In Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, one brother who's rejected God shares with another brother who's trying to hold on to his faith how he deals with the problem of evil and suffering. And he tells a story. He said these upscale, refined parents uh, did these horrible things to their little girl, their five-year-old girl. They beat her, they kicked her, they flogged her for no reason that they themselves knew of. The child's whole body was covered in bruises. Eventually they devised devised a new refinement of their abuse. Under the pretext that the child dirtied her bed as though a five-year-old deep in sleep could be punished for that, they forced her to eat excrement and smeared her face with it as punishment. And it was the mother that did it, the brother says to his other brother. And that woman could lock her daughter up in the outhouse until morning. And she did so even on the coldest nights when it was freezing. Just imagine the woman being able to sleep with the child's cries coming from that outhouse. Imagine that little creature unable to even understand what is happening to her, beating her sore little chest with her tiny fist, weeping hot, unresentful, meek tears, and begging gentle Jesus to help her. Let's assume, brother, that you were called upon to build the edifice of human destiny so that men would finally be happy and would find peace and tranquility. If you knew that, only to attain this, you would have to torture just one single creature. Let's say the little girl who beat her chest so desperately, and that on her unavenged tears you could build that edifice. Would you agree to it? And in this novel, he's arguing, how can we believe in an all-powerful, all-good God who allows these kinds of things to happen in our world? And uh, what I want to talk about this morning is not just an answer for us as Christians, but how do we give answers to those who would raise that question? Is there any way I can get the, what's on these PowerPoints on the back screen? We can't do that. <laughs> I have to keep craning my neck around. Um, but that's something that every one of us should be prepared to answer. Because this is the top objection raised. And the truth is, when unbelievers raise this question, they're raising a good question. This is not, it's not a bad thing when they ask this question. It shows that they have a proper desire for reconciliation between what the world's supposed to be and how it really works. It also shows that they have a connection with reality. They're not trying to pretend that evil doesn't exist. So folks, the problem of evil and suffering is a distinctly Christian problem. If I'm an evolutionist, 
and I believe the world is the way it's supposed to be, and it's guided by blind time and chance, then I should expect suffering. But as a Christian, we, we preach and proclaim, we believe in an all-powerful, all-good God, and yet look at the horrendous evil that takes place in this world. Look at the suffering of natural disasters, the tsunami that happened a few years ago, Hurricane Katrina, earthquakes, and then think of the evil that's perpetrated upon people all around the world. This is our problem. We have to answer it. And more than ever before, we are aware in our internet-connected world of these things that go on around the world. We cannot as Christians say, well, I'm fine living where I am, nothing hurts me, I'm okay, and therefore I won't have to engage this topic. If we are going to win the loss, we have got to have an answer for this. Because this is the question that they're asking. Some people who've suffered greatly or who have lost loved ones say that this is an irrefutable case against God. They say things like this, and this is a good question. Couldn't have God made a world better than the world that we live in in which evil and suffering exists? Couldn't God have made a world in which evil and suffering didn't exist? They might also say this, I would never hurt my children needlessly, so why does God bring these things upon people in the world? What do you do with that? How do you as a Christian answer that? Because if we're engaging the lost at all, if we're trying to reach the lost at all, we are going to encounter this issue. Uh, the two most active apologists that I know are my wife and my son. My wife works at a, uh, at a hospital in Lancaster, and most of the people she works with are unbelievers. Uh, the last two years of high school, my son went to public school, and this was a question raised to him quite often there. And uh, my wife kept coming home over a period of time saying, Mark, I get this question almost daily by people who know I'm a Christian. How can you believe in God when this is in the news today? So how do you answer this? So I'd like to focus this morning on providing answers for you as a Christian. And hopefully in the process, if you're struggling with this yourself, you'll find some help. In every church gathering these days, there's people who believe and are growing and mature in their faith. But there's also people who are wavering. Either because their, their beliefs are under attack or they're experiencing difficulties. And they're questioning, how do I hang on to my faith when life is throwing me for a loop? And then there's a third category of people who come and they're skeptical. They're here maybe because they have to be, or they want to see if there's anything good that's going to be said. So if you're in any one of those three categories, I want to encourage you today. This is an answer for that problem of evil and suffering. So if someone were to say to me, Mark, how do you know that God exists? How can there be a God who exists when there's evil and suffering? By the way, if we have time at the end of the service, I'd love to take questions. So in the last hour, we ended early, took questions. So as we go through this, if questions arise, please jot them down and ask. Otherwise, it gets very awkward for me to stand here in silence. I don't mind doing that in the college classroom, but in church, it's a little different. So here, here's how I would answer someone who asked me that question. First of all, I want to make sure that we look behind their assumptions. Remember in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy and Toto and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion all show up before the wizard and he's this great and terrible Oz, this face that yells at them. And then Toto runs over and pulls the curtain back and you realize Oz is just a little old man pulling levers and pushing buttons. Well, when someone raises a challenge to your Christian faith, the first thing to do is to challenge their challenge. See, what are they assuming? And when someone asks this question, notice right away they're assuming that suffering is necessarily bad. They're assuming that suffering is necessarily bad. 
However, if this person holds to an evolutionary worldview in which everything happened by time and chance and there is no divine being guiding this, then the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. Think about this. If evolution is the way things are run, the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And everyone who does evil is just doing what they've been genetically engineered to do in their DNA. There's evil and suffering in the world because that's the way natural selection works. And therefore, they shouldn't have a problem with it. But every skeptic and atheist I talk to has a major problem with evil and suffering. So I will say to them, why do you think suffering is bad? You think it's an argument against God, but why do you think it's bad? Secondly, they somehow argue that suffering is unfair. Why is it that some people prosper and other people suffer? Why do some people uh, die in a terrible car accident and someone else lives? And they have this sense of fairness, not because it comes from their worldview, but because internally, being made in the image of God, they long for things to be the way that they should be. Thirdly, I will challenge them by asking, uh, why do you believe that evil and suffering cannot result in good that makes it worthwhile? Uh, when my, little, my, my oldest daughter, Kate, who's now a mother, I'm a grandfather now, when she was a little girl, um, I remember I took her to the, to the doctor to get some vaccinations, and, and they pinched her fat little thigh and jammed the needle in it, and she looked up at me with this look of, Daddy, why are you letting them do this to me? And I remember, I just re I realized right then and there, she's going to remember this. And she did for the next few years. Every time we'd go to get her portrait taken, we'd pull up to an office building. She would start to cry thinking it was the doctor's office. And so all her pictures as a little girl had tears in the eyes as she's clutching her Barney tightly as her support system there. The assumption is that... Pain can never be good, and yet you and I know that pain can be good. Pain and suffering can lead to good. And so I will challenge that unbeliever, why do you think pain and suffering cannot be for our good? But notice also, this challenge assumes that there's a distinction between good and evil. If someone says, how come there's so much evil in the world? I want to say to them, what do you mean by evil? Can you define evil? As a Christian, I have an explanation for evil, because in the Christian worldview, we have things like sin and holiness, wickedness and righteousness. But as an unbeliever, where do you get this idea of evil? Why is it so bad that someone in the Middle East beheads someone else? Why is that a bad thing? As a Christian, I think it is. But what is your basis for condemning that? And what they don't realize is there's assuming, they're assuming there's a difference between good and evil. They also assume that there's a standard by which we judge that difference between good and evil. And they're also arguing that that standard can be known, that people shouldn't do those kinds of things. And that standard should compel people to do the right thing. You notice in these objections to Christianity, there's all kinds of assumptions. If you're going to reach unbelievers effectively, you've got to ask yourself, what are they assuming that in their worldview doesn't make sense? What I find a lot of times is unbelievers pick and choose parts of Christianity. Like, we, we like justice. We like mercy. We like compassion. Well, those are all Christian virtues. And before Christianity came along, before God called His people uh, in the Old Testament, called Abraham out of uh, out of Ur and, and started a new nation and gave them commandments that, that teach the dignity of each human being and care and concern for others, those things didn't exist. 
So when someone challenges the Christian faith, they say, where do you get those concepts? It makes sense to me as a Christian because of God's character, but where do you get that idea? It also assumes that there is meaning to events in the world and there is meaning to suffering. See, this whole question of how can there be a good God when there's evil and suffering in the world assumes so many things and we want to challenge those things before we present an answer. Because if you challenge them, here's what happens. The unbeliever comes to realize that he has no intellectual basis for, for believing any of these things. And yet, intuitively, he feels that it's not right. And that's one thing I've often found in dealing with non-Christians is they cannot shake the nature of themselves as made in the image of God. They intuitively know that there's something wrong with evil and suffering. Even though in their belief systems they say, that I don't believe in right and wrong. I was having uh, coffee with a well-known atheist in Pennsylvania on Wednesday. We get together on a regular basis and we talk about what we believe. And he had a hard time, um, and he, he came out and denied, said, I don't believe that rape is necessarily wrong. It just doesn't help us flourish as a society. That's the irrationality of someone who takes that to the logical end. That he says, I don't believe in right and wrong. There's just some things that help us as a society. And I said, you think I'm irrational for being a Christian, yet listen to you. You can't even condemn something that is so obviously wrong that almost everyone in the world recognizes that to be so. So what are, what are some non-Christian answers? How do, how do non-Christians answer this problem of evil and suffering? One approach says that evil and suffering is just an illusion. So in, in religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Shintoism, a lot of the Asian Eastern religions, they would deny that suffering really exists. It's just an illusion. You just think that there's those things in the world. And I always want to say, hold out your thumb here. Let me grab my hammer. Let's see if pain and suffering is really an illusion. And Ravi Zacharias, who's a well-known Christian apologist, grew up part of his life in India, would say, even in India, we, we look out before we step out in front of a bus. Because we might say that, you know, Hindus might say that there's no pain and suffering. But if you step in front of a bus, you're going to find out differently. But some people, in trying to deal with this issue, just say that, that pain and suffering are not real. Others talk about the weakness of God. God does not overcome all evil because He cannot, even though He wants to. Sometimes we might be tempted to think this when we say, God allows suffering into your life. And it lasts a long time, and you cry out to Him over and over, and God does nothing. Some people have resorted to the fact that I, I don't want to impugn God's love for me. I don't want to say that God's not powerful enough. So, so maybe, maybe he just can't. Because I don't see how else or why else he wouldn't take away my suffering and pain. It'd be very easy to default to this to say, well, God's just not able or God's limited in some way. And God can't help me as much as I would like him to. But the Bible's clear that God can help anyone. God comes down. I love Psalm 18. Where the psalmist describes himself in trouble. And it says, God, he cries out to God, and in heaven God's anger is raised against those who are hurting the psalmist. And God comes down surfing on black clouds, and he snatches his child up. All through Scripture we're told that God is perfectly able to rescue us. Others would argue that man has free will, and therefore God can't interfere with man's free will. 
that God would like to help you, but he would have to step on your toes, and, and God's not willing to do that because God holds sovereignly man's free will and free choice, and, and God's not going to interfere with that at all. For some, that's an answer. However, Scripture tells us repeatedly that God steps in. God takes human evil and He turns it for good. Remember Joseph, toward the end of his life, his father's died. His brothers come to him, they fall on their face and they say, Joseph, our father's dead and now we know that you could easily kill us. And they beg Joseph not to kill them. And, and Joseph says, you know, who am I to stand in the place of God? You meant what you did for me, what you did to me for evil. But God meant it for good. See, God is able to take even the evil actions of people and turn them for the good. And then the last non-Christian answer is Christian fatalism. Which says, don't let suffering bother you. It's really a blessing. It's nothing to cry about. And the truth is, I was taught this version of dealing with suffering when I was growing up in my church. You were told to, to control your emotions so that all through life you were just steady Eddie. And I was very good at it. <laughs> never get too excited. Never get upset about anything. Just control those emotions so that they almost don't exist. It sounds Christian, but it actually comes straight out of Greek philosophy. This is the argument of the Stoics, early philosophers, who said to control all your emotions is the ultimate in knowing yourself and mastering yourself. And it sounds Christian, but when you look through Scripture, you see God's both, both God's passion for the truth, His passion for people, and also God's grief, as we'll see in just a moment in John 11. So what answer can we give? When we're dealing with unbelievers, we need to question them about this objection based on their own belief system. Again, if they believe in an evolutionary worldview, then the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. But most people intuitively struggle with that. If they're going through suffering, they want to know, why is this happening to me? Many of them will even be angry at the God they don't believe exists. That's the contradiction. Because they cannot escape this knowledge of God that God's implanted in them, and yet they're angry that God has allowed something to happen. Well, let me say this. If you're, if you're talking with an unbeliever, if, you're, if, you're, if you have a relationship with them, first of all, don't try to provide an answer right away. Realize sometimes people need a loving, compassionate hug. And a statement like, I, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. I know this must be tearing you up. People don't always need an intellectual answer. Sometimes they need to know if you just care as a Christian. However, if they really want to know an answer, then I'm going to proceed to share some of these answers with them. Notice, first of all, God is the standard for His own actions. Sometimes we think, here's justice, and, and God has to rise up to this level of justice. That somehow God has to meet my standard of being merciful and good. And this, again, is not a Christian idea. It comes from Greek philosophy. Plato said that there were these universal ideas of justice and goodness, and somehow I have to explain God's actions and make sure that God meets that standard. In reality, it goes this way. Whatever God does is just. Whatever God does is merciful. Whatever God does is loving and compassionate. And I need to reconcile the experiences I have and come to believe by faith that whatever God brings into my life is just and good and merciful. And folks, that is really hard to do sometimes. Eleven years ago in April, I was uh, taking my kids 
on a hiking trip uh, not far from our home in the Philadelphia area. And uh, I was getting into the woods just past the place where you lose cell phone reception, and my phone rang. And uh, my wife was on the other line. She said, Mark, you got to come right away. Your mom's been in a serious car accident. So we gathered up the kids, ran back out of the woods, got in the car, drove about 10, 15 minutes to the fire station. And I got there just in time to see them load my mom on a helicopter to take her down to the University of Pennsylvania. She was coming to pick up my wife. She just moved to the area to be near us after my parents divorced. And uh, she was deeply involved in the lives of my kids who were in elementary school and junior high at the time. She was their volleyball coach, taught them how to swim, taught them how to uh, play basketball. And she was on her way to pick up my wife that day, and as she crossed a busy road, she got T-boned by a work truck right in the driver's side door. Fortunately, it was about three-quarters of a mile from a, a fire station. They got to her quickly, but she'd been unconscious for 10 minutes. When I saw them loading her onto the um, helicopter, there was no apparent injury. There was no blood anywhere, no apparent broken bones. They flew her down. We drove to Philly as quickly as we could, and we waited seven hours for a surgeon to come out to tell us her condition. And he came out, he said, I, I don't know how she's doing. We had to remove part of her skull so her brain could swell, and it's just going to be a waiting game. And so for five days, we went to the hospital every day, all day, waited. She would make some movements, and we think that would, we thought, okay, she's, she's waking up or something, but it was just muscle spasms. And after five days, the surgeons sat down with us, and they said, we just want you to know there's no brain activity. Your mom will never wake up again. And uh, you can either let her go into a nursing home. She'll die of pneumonia at some point, but she will never wake up again. There's nothing left there. And we had to make the choice. I have two sisters. They look to me. And uh, I used to teach bioethics at that time. I used to teach on issues like this. And then it was real life for me. And we had to make the decision to remove her from the, the heart and lung machine. And her heart kept beating for a few hours, but she passed away. To this day, I don't know why God did that. My mom, was, I used to think 62 was old, but now I think it's really young. <laughs> and she was vibrant, and I thought, Lord, why are you taking her away from us? She just moved down near us not long ago. And the truth is, when you meet someone who's suffered a loss or who's endured human evil, we need to be careful as Christians not to brush off. We need to realize that I need to be compassionate and gentle with this person. I need to help them understand, or in my own heart if I'm dealing with it, to come to realize that God is the one who determines what is just, what is merciful. Notice also, God does not need to defend His actions to us. Remember the story of Job, where, where Job cries out because he's a righteous man. It, it's emphasized over and over again in Job 1 and 2 that Job is a righteous man. And yet God allows Satan to torment. God allows Satan to take away everything he has. And toward the end of the book of Job, Job starts insisting, God, I want my day in court. I want to have a chance to defend myself to show that what you've done to me is not just, that it's not okay. If you remember, God sits Job down and says, I will put you on the stand. I will question you. And he asked Job all these questions. And at the end, Job says, I, I humble myself in ashes and sackcloth. I repent that I ever question you, God, because I don't know these things. I don't have answers for them. And that's part of the reality of evil and suffering is we cannot understand the reasons of a perfect, infinite, and uncreated God for why he allows evil and suffering. 
And this doesn't always bring us some satisfaction. Turn in your Bibles and look in Ezekiel 18 for just a moment. Ezekiel 18. We come to realize that we are not the masters who demand of God an answer. Rather, we are God's subjects who accept God for who He is as a gracious, just God, even when we don't understand the things that He does. In Ezekiel 18, beginning in verse 23. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away and live? Down in verse 25. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. They're accusing God of not doing justice. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? See, the problem is you and I, we have such a limited ability to understand the ideas of what is just. And when we accuse God of injustice by bringing evil and suffering, we are like little children trying to tell the parent what to do. And if you have little kids, you know how frustrating that can be. Daddy, I really need chocolate cake for breakfast this morning. It'll make me strong. It's a good argument, right? All right. And yet, we know that because that child has limited knowledge, that's not the best for us. The truth is, with man's limited understanding, he cannot possibly know whether God has a good reason for the things that he does. When I was uh, in junior high school, calculators were regularly, uh, were a, a generally new thing. That was back in the 1970s. I remember getting my first calculator. So excited. It could add 2 plus 2. It could subtract 5 minus 2. It could do all these amazing things. We were easily entertained in the 1970s. And now I have a, a laptop computer that's the, the latest, greatest Mac laptop. It has more processing power than you know, the original computer, which filled a room like this. See, God's mind, God's infinite character and knowledge is like an advanced computer. And our minds are like a calculator. If a calculator tries to understand what this massive computer does, or if I try to download the operating system of the computer onto a calculator, it just doesn't work. As a Christian, I need to come by faith and realize God is going to do things in my life that I don't understand, that make no sense to me. And yet I have to trust the character of God, that He's good. Just as a little child has to trust the parent when the child brings them in and says, you need this painful treatment or you need this difficult test because it is ultimately good for you. The child does not understand. In the same way as Christians, we understand that we can sometimes never know why God does the things that He does. But we do know this, is that God grieves over evil and suffering. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 11 for just a moment. In John chapter 11, we have the story of Jesus coming to Bethany after his friend Lazarus has died. And as you know, Jesus waited a few extra days where he was when he heard word of Lazarus' death, or sickness first, and then his death. 
And when Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus' two sisters, Martha and Mary, come out to him. And they're both grieving because they, they believe, they're one of the clear examples in the New Testament of followers of Jesus who completely believed in his deity, completely believed who he was and understood. John 11, verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. In the ancient Jewish mindset, a person, when they died, their spirit stayed around for three days, and then at, at four days, the spirit disappeared and, and left completely. So Jesus waits that there's no confusion that Lazarus is dead. <clears throat> Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console him concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what Martha's looking for here is an explanation. Martha wants to know why, Lord. We'll see in just a moment. Mary wanted something else. Mary needed something else. So in response to Martha, in verse 22, she says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. With Martha, Jesus had a ministry of truth. She needed an explanation. When you're talking with unbelievers who are wrestling with this issue, you've got to ask the Lord, show me, what does this person need? And with Martha, she needed that ministry of truth, that explanation about who Jesus is and what he was capable of doing. But notice in verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, same exact words, but Jesus discerned a different heart here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The Greek word here is fascinating. It means Jesus bellowed out angrily, Ah! Why? Not because he couldn't do anything. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But because Jesus, in his full humanity grieves over the brokenness and the curse of our world. Are you aware of how broken and cursed our world is? Ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, this world is under a curse. Everything is more difficult than it should be. There's pain and suffering that God never intended in the world. And Jesus here, in His full deity and full humanity, experiences the agony of living in a broken world. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. I find it fascinating that Jesus didn't stroll into this situation saying, all right, everybody, calm down. I'm here. It's going to be okay. 
just a moment, when you have your cell phones out, I'm going to snap my fingers. Lazarus is going to come back. We're going to have a big party. It's going to be great. He could have done that. But Jesus enters into the grief of his friends. Because he himself is about to experience the grief of the cross. And it's real. It's real. It's not imaginary. Jesus is not pretending to know what it's like. As we're told in Hebrews, we don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We have an advocate with the Father. We have a Savior who understands the grief and pain, the burden of temptation. And God enters into this with us. Verse 37, Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They wanted results, but but Jesus knew that while Martha needed a ministry of truth, Mary needed a ministry of tears. If you've undergone suffering and you know what it's like, you need someone to weep with you. You need someone that cares and is concerned. When I was 37, I went to the doctor to get my cholesterol checked at the insistence of my wife. Matt, always listen to your wives when it comes to medical issues. The results came back and they said, you have high cholesterol, but you also have a significant kidney disease. I'm like, that can't possibly be. I'm in great health. I feel good. I'm very active. They said, you have one kidney that doesn't work at all, one kidney that works at 23%, and you'll probably need a transplant within a year. In a space of a a matter of minutes and, and over the space of a few weeks of tests, my life went from very active to heavy medication to slow down the progress of the disease. The nice thing is it kept me from having to have a transplant for five more years. But during the next five years, as my health declined, I began to get chronically fatigued. I couldn't even climb a flight of stairs without being exhausted. I was a seminary professor at the time. I'd teach my classes in the morning. I'd go up to my office and sleep for two hours just to get through the rest of the day. I became, instead of being very active, I became very limited, stayed at home more often. And my wife lived with the constant thought that I'm going to be a widow soon. And the interesting thing was in our church, a woman had just started coming to our church whose husband had just died of end-stage renal failure like I was in. And I thought, Lord, what are you doing? I'm teaching future pastors here. I'm trying to follow you and serve you. This is not making sense, God. Do you not care about me? And some of you know what's like, what that's like to endure physical suffering or to lose someone you love and you question God. And the comfort was, God knows what I'm going through. Jesus has endured suffering. Jesus has endured on my behalf the agony of loss. And so one of the comforts is that God grieves with us. When I talk to an unbeliever who's wrestling with evil and suffering, I take the time to listen to their story. I don't try to provide answers right away, but eventually I have to bring it around to tell them this. I don't know why God has allowed you to suffer this way. I don't know why God took your child at one month old. But I do know this, as God grieves at the suffering in this world. God grieves at the curse in this world. God does not stand afar off. I don't know why he didn't change that situation. I can't give you that answer. But I do know this. Is God himself knows what suffering is like. And God experienced the greatest suffering in order to ensure an end to suffering. See, folks, we don't have an answer for why God does what he does in many people's lives. I, I pastored in an urban setting in Connecticut for seven years. 
And some of the most horrific things I've ever heard done to other people were, were the experiences of people in my church. Things I would not even mention because there's young years here. And I had to tell those people, I don't know why God allowed that to happen to you. But I do know this, is God has made sure that, that no one has to suffer the ultimate suffering. No one has to spend eternity separated from Him in a place of torment. No one has to uh, let this life be the end. God has provided, through the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, a way for you and I to have eternal bliss, to be freed from the curse of sin. Let me tell you, this is a powerful answer we need to be prepared to give. Because what did Jesus do for us? On the cross as He hung there, it's not just that He endured the nails and the beating and the scourging beforehand. During the three hours that the sky went dark, God took all His wrath against sin, and He poured it out on the Son. God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus endured God's wrath against hell for us, so that we could be saved. So when Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, and He rose again, He provides hope for you and I. So I can tell an unbeliever, I don't know why God's allowing this. It may never change in your lifetime, but God loves you enough that He came. And His Son died on the cross for you so you can be delivered from this eternally. And this is a powerful argument. Notice a few other things here about Christian answers to the problem of evil and suffering. God hates evil and has nothing to do with it. And evil is the enemy of God in all that He has made. And one thing I've noticed is non-Christian views minimize evil. My atheistic friend there doesn't think the world's all that bad. He thinks people are basically good, and, and sometimes we blow bad out of proportion. That's almost like the illusion view of evil that's, that's not really out there at all. As a Christian, I can look at the evil in the world and I can, I can say, this is, this is not what God intended. I can condemn that evil. But I also have to realize evil resides in my heart. And sometimes people will say, why doesn't God just wipe out all the evil just like that? Why doesn't He do that? Because He would wipe out all of us, wouldn't He? Evil is not some atmospheric condition floating out there. Evil resides in the human heart. And I need to realize that God has taken care of evil, not in my time, right now, but in the ultimate. And God suffers the ultimate evil by overcoming evil through the death of His Son, Jesus. Folks, this is the answer we need to be prepared to give. People are wrestling with evil and suffering. We dare not as Christians to stand aloof and say, well, my life is okay, therefore I'm not going to worry about you. We need to enter the darkest depths of human experience with the good news of the gospel. Engage people face to face with the gospel and share this encouraging good news to them. We have about seven or eight minutes for questions. Yes, sir. Oh, right up here. We'll wait till the microphone gets there so we can all hear right up front. Yeah, I'm kind of dealing with this right now with a coworker who deals with severe depression. And his question sometimes is, why is God doing this to me in, in a personal sense? 
uh, you know, I've kind of talked to him about some of these very same things. At the same time, uh, you know, we, we talk about the ultimate sin coming into the world through what happened at, uh, with uh, Adam and Eve and uh, uh, following Satan. And, you know, his question then becomes, well, why do I have to suffer generational sin from Adam? Mm-hmm. Okay, am I not a separate individual from Adam, and why does his sin carry over to me? Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, that's a tough one because I've heard that before too. Uh, the answer I, I often give is when God created Adam and Eve, they were our representatives and whatever they did has distinct effect on us. Um, and whether we find that to be fair or not, you know, we are, we are made in Adam's image in a sense as sinners. But I'd also point out that every one of us chooses to sin every day. And so I don't believe any of us would make any other decision than Adam and Eve would. Um, and that's probably the best you can do with that particular question. It's because we're each guilty for our own sin uh, in addition to that. When it comes to depression uh, and wondering why God is allowing that, uh, I would probably point out two things. Number one, that, that many, many Christians, um, the, the hymn writer Cowper, for example, uh, suffered with depression all their lives. And from that depression came some beautiful things in, in hymn writing. And so sometimes I would, I would tell a person like that, um, that God could use your depression uh, for his glory. Uh, but it also might be the case that he's trying to bring you to himself. That depression is not solved just by getting saved, typically. Um, but God might use that to draw him, draw you to himself. And I would probably say maybe, maybe God is using this so that you see your need for salvation. Good question. Someone else? In the, a couple in the back here? Okay. I was just wondering how you deal with the issue of personal responsibility because too often people don't want to accept responsibility for their actions. Even if a Christian marries a non-Christian and their life crumbles and falls apart, they don't often realize that they themselves are responsible for what's happened to them. That's a good one. So what do you do with people who have brought upon themselves suffering from their choices? Uh, I probably wouldn't start out by saying, hey, it's your fault, you know, live with it. Even though I might be tempted to, and I, I know pastors have to deal with this too as they see church members make bad decisions, I'd probably come to them and remind them that, that because of the hope that Christ gives, that, that this is not the end, um, that God can help them deal with some of their problems and fix some of their problems, um, and hopefully along the way in that kind of discussion help them to see that you know God does promise blessing through if we, if we obey his commands and his principles, we can experience blessing and encourage them to start planting a harvest in their life that will, that will bring, a, start planting seeds in their life of actions that will bring a harvest of blessing. So they come to realize over time, uh, whatever, I've, whatever I've dug myself into, um, God can change my life around. I think also about First Peter, I think it's First Peter 2, where Peter says, uh, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, rejoice. Peter says, I don't mean if you suffer for doing evil. If you suffer for doing evil, then accept that as the, as the right consequences of your choices. But God also is a God of mercy. His mercies are new each day. And I can begin to change the harvest that I'm reaping now by planting new seeds. And to, find, and to encourage them that God can help them to do that. It's a great question. Yes? Me? Yes. Um... My, 
my stepmom, she had a son, and he was 18 when he died. He got in a terrible hockey accident, and she always tells me that the younger you are and you die, the more that God wants you in heaven. What do you have to say about that? There's a lot of things that, uh, when it comes to death, that comfort us so that we can deal with the, the pain of that death. Um, when it comes to the, the death of a young person, um, and we look what the Bible actually says, um, again, we don't know why God allows that kind of thing, but we do know that God cares deeply for the heart of that person who's suffered the loss. And I would, I would point them not so much as to whether God wanted that person in heaven, as much as it is that God has a purpose for these things, and, and we need to consider our own lives who are left behind to grieve, what is God wanting us to do or to respond? In the Gospel of Luke, disciples came and asked Jesus about two things. A natural disaster. What about that Tower of Siloam that fell on people? And then he also asked them about Herod, who mingled the blood of um, the Jews with the offerings or sacrifices. So there was a case of human evil and natural suffering. Suffering, And in both cases, Jesus said, two things you need to know. Don't think for a moment that, that you're better than, than them because it didn't happen to you. Don't think God struck them down because they're worse than you. But then secondly, you need to consider yourself. Where am I with God? Am I right with God or, or am I just not even thinking about that? It's a great question. It's a very sad story. Yes? Do you have a fairly concise answer for people about the problem of original sin? So if God's really all-powerful and all-good, how did sin get here in the first place? Yeah, you're the second person this morning to ask me that question, so thank you. That's a good question. So God did not create evil. God did not create sin. He created the devil and created the world with the potential to sin, but his intent was, to, um, was that they would obey and experience his blessing. So evil is not an entity in itself that had to be created. It's a lack of obedience, a lack of good uh, in, in following God. I used to teach a world religion class at a secular university, and each week I'd explain a different religion. When I explained Christianity one time, I had a, a woman who was an atheist on the front row, and I explained how God made the Garden of Eden and gave Adam and Eve all the fruit trees for their enjoyment and just put one restriction on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she said, well, that's not fair. That's not good of God. I said, maybe you didn't understand what I said. God made the garden and gave them everything, all these good things to enjoy. Just one restriction. She said, yeah, I think that's terrible. And I think that's an evidence of the human heart is that original sin uh, is not something that, that God caused to happen. But he did create the world and gave Adam and Eve uh, the opportunity to either obey or not. And they chose not to obey. I hope that answers the question. Are we done? Okay. I can answer that question in private, maybe. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Mark. Um, those of you of us here, uh, intellectually satisfied with all the answers and you've got it all solved, right? Yeah. Um, well, isn't, isn't it a measure of faith as well? We don't know why God allows some of the things that occur. I remember a missionary by the name of John Payton. I would encourage you to read his autobiography. He came to an island where there were cannibals to preach the gospel. And in the matter of about three months, his wife died. His child died. 
within the week after she passed away. And four years on that island with those cannibals, chasing him, trying to kill him, no one's converted. And in all that time, hiding from those cannibals and sharing the gospel with them when he had opportunity, the one comfort that he had was this, that in all that he would pray, in all the terrible things that occurred to him, his wife, his child, cannibals, he said, Lord, you are allowing this for good, for whatever purpose, and I trust you. What? You and I have to trust in the Lord that all he does is good. We don't know what it is. We don't know all the answers and why these things are happening. But it is for good. And I don't know. Well, I hope that you can go out and you can share a few answers of how to better share the gospel with those you come in contact with. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Well, let's stand together. So, Father, we want to thank you so much. We thank you for the goodness that you've uh, displayed through the cross of pouring your wrath upon Jesus who did not deserve it. We deserve that, but you poured it out on him, the most evil act in human history. But it was for a good purpose of expressing your love to us, saving us from our sin that we couldn't do ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to continue just to trust and walk by faith because the just shall live by faith. We love you. And I pray again that we would um, love you, that our love for you would increase, and that we would express that through our obedience to you and in our actions as we go out this week as missionaries to share your gospel to those we come in contact with. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.